uh, if you've heard the name Dawson Gurley. How many of you have heard the name Dawson Gurley? Maybe one? It's good. Uh, You shouldn't know his name. Uh, He was an impersonator of an NBA all-star by the name of Clay Thompson. He actually dressed up like him, snuck into the stadium, made his way down to the court, passed security, waved as he was going by because he looks like the guy, made his all the way to the court and is shooting around. And and I think this is an impressive feat. Um, But imagine with me for a moment that they didn't catch him after this point. Clay Thompson was sick. He doesn't actually show up at all. So fake Clay gets into a real situation where he's being placed into the game. And this is not just any game, but this is the finals. And he is shooting the clutch shots that they need him to be shooting. And he's missing all of them. This could be so costly because the identity was mistaken. The reality is the identity of the person is rather significant. And Mark is telling us in his whole account that we need to be aware of the identity of who Jesus is. We need to know who he is because this impacts the game. This impacts the mission. This impacts the gospel. It's important to get the identity right. And the whole book of Mark is informing us that Jesus is the son of God. This is the identity He is the Son of God. And last time we saw two major proofs of this as we met to discuss the book of Mark in those first 13 verses. We saw that the prophets and God speak to this identity. And tonight we're going to see three more proofs. Three proofs that Jesus is the Son of God. And it is critical that we get this right so that we see the clarity of the gospel correctly. If Jesus is the Son of God, then we must rightly apply the gospel as fishers of men as well. And so the first proof we will be looking at this evening is found in verses 14 through 15 of the text. And that's Jesus preaching. Jesus' preaching proves that he is the Son of God. I'll read verse 14 for you. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. The gospel of God. This is the only time in the whole book of Mark that we'll see the content of this gospel explicitly explained. And so it should be in the back of your minds as we move throughout the book of Mark. He's weaving this term for preaching of the gospel throughout chapter 1 as well. If you look back to verse 4, we see that John the Baptist is preaching a message of repentance. Now Jesus is picking up this preaching in verse 14. Jesus will also be preaching in verses 38 through 39, and we will see that there's a leper who actually proclaims and preaches at the very end of the chapter. So the chapter is bisected right down the middle, verse 14, with preaching, and bookended with preaching. And it's interesting, in the midst of this preaching, what you should notice also is that there is suffering. This feels like an abrupt moment. There's a jarring feeling you're supposed to have. It's fascinating here that in the moment Jesus is launching his ministry and preaching the good news, the good news of God, no less, we are also briefly jarred with the bad news of John the Baptist. He was taken into custody. That's not going to be fleshed out here, which I think is fascinating. There's a flashback that will happen in chapter 6 later on. So he's going to zoom in back there. But he places this here for us to see this contrast. In the midst of suffering, there is good news. The message of good news comes in the middle of our bad news. And notice the content of this message in verse 15. And saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
The kingdom is taking form. There is visible fulfillment of the prophecies of the old and the coming Messiah is right in this very moment in front of them. Paul uses this language in Romans 1, 1 through 4 to describe the gospel of God as well. Maybe jot that down to compare. It's interesting to see what gospel he explains in those verses. One that describes a son of God as well. One who has holiness, this resurrection of the dead of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's helpful to know all this because Mark is not talking to a Jewish context primarily. He's, he's speaking to not a Jewish audience, but those who are outsiders, those who are Gentiles in Rome. And these Gentile believers benefit from seeing Jesus as the Messiah in the Christ as the Son of God, most specifically, because that's on terms that they understand. They know about kings. They know about kingdoms, right? This is Rome, after all. This is a kingdom that they can understand and get behind. And so this portrait is specific to the audience. They're going to see a messianic portrait painted for them in a way that they can grasp it. And there will be these themes woven throughout like a braided rope that proves this message as it's cycled through the book of Mark. The same proofs that we see in chapter 1 are going to show up again and again throughout the book. And this time... It says that the kingdom, this, this time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So in this message, both of these verbs here about the kingdom and the time being fulfilled, the verbs being used are in the perfect tense, which means this is something that's not eminent. It's not something that's coming. It's a, a reality of now. And so we don't have to get into the weeds of this moment of expanding all that this word kingdom can mean. But what we do see is that there is a turning point. There's something powerful about the kingdom of God that is happening now in this exact moment. God is actualizing something as Jesus begins his ministry. A new era of fulfilled promises has begun that demands a response. Repent and believe. And these two pieces must be taken together. Repentance and belief. You can't have one without the other. And so when you hear one, you should assume the other is with it. They are joined together. Turn from your sin. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has power to save you from your sin and offer you his righteousness. And this powerful message of this present reality kingdom has us on the edges of our seats as we enter into this story. Yes, come, O conquering king, to reign and rule. A a good king, a good kingdom. That is what we want. And so too, we must say this day, come slay our sin as we repent and believe in the Son, the Son of God. And come return quickly, O conquering king, to rule and reign over your kingdom. If Jesus is the Son of God, then we must rightly apply the gospel of God as fishers of men. So this transition brings us to the second proof then, and the first two are much shorter than the third. The second proof of Jesus' identity of the Son of God is that people prove he is the Son of God. People prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And I see this in verses 16 through 20. Now, in the wake of the profound words of Jesus' incredible proclamation that the messianic kingdom and the fulfilled prophecy is happening at this very moment, how do you expect the Son of God's ministry to begin? What do you expect that to look like? Jesus rallying the greatest fighters to go take down Rome. He should be gathering the most powerful political leaders. Where does Mark take us next? To a couple of fishermen on the shore of Galilee. 
Didn't see that coming, did you? I think we can be blinded to these details when we read through these things quickly and and don't slow down to see, to catch and understand what Mark is doing as we are jarred back and forth through his story. He's directing our attention in a specific way. The contrast of this big kingdom moment with these seemingly small people. Yet God has always loved using the weak to shame the wise. God's kingdom doesn't always look like what you would expect it to, does it? And he will continually show that, Mark does, throughout this message um, as we, we expect something and get something else in return many times. And many will ultimately reject the message because of that. It's not the one they want. What is the true message? Repent and believe. Many people don't want this. So a huge claim of massage, massive fulfillment, the kingdom reign, a call to repent and believe, and what starts to be looking like a dominating empire begins with two fishermen, Simon and Andrew. In verses 16 through 18. These are two brothers. They were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They were wading and would cast nets. Likely these circular nets where they would walk out and throw them out into the sea. And these nets are still used today. They're actually very mesmerizing to watch in slow motion. And as they're sent out, this this was a sea that was lush with life. The Sea of Galilee, vibrant. The Sea of Galilee is about the size of Table Rock Lake, if you're trying to put that into perspective. And it's 141 feet deep, filling up with springs from all around it. There is life everywhere. And so these fishermen were common. They were around the shore and they would fish in this area and sustain life not only in Capernaum, but even beyond. And we see that there's actually two other fishermen that are called. So we have Simon and Andrew, Simon who we will later know as Peter, and then also James and John in verses 19 and 20. These two fishermen are likely more affluent. They have a boat. They're not just wading out and casting nets, but they have a boat and their father has hired hands even that he's utilizing. And so they were all fishing on this same body of water and Jesus comes to them and says just a few words that are recorded for us in Mark. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. I will make you become. This is an interesting phrase, a pairing of two verbs. The process of discipleship is foretold here in Jesus' words. It's, it's not an instantaneous transition into a perfectly sanctified disciple, but it's going to be a process of learning, a process that will not happen overnight. I will make you become disciples. And the command comes with a promise that they will be made into these disciples. Christ himself will make them. But it demands obedience. It demands some sort of renouncing. They abandon a significant part of their lives to become Jesus' disciples. It's a full-time gig. This is life-on-life apprenticeship. And Jesus promises to increasingly shape these men into disciple makers. So there is an act of service that comes out of this discipleship as well. A duty that they will fulfill, fishing for men. And there's some lessons in there for us, aren't there? Our discipleship and sanctification is this way too. Discipleship is truly a lifelong practice. It is a continual practice. It involves life-on-life ministry. We must immerse ourselves into the teaching of God's word as well of Christ and apply it to our own lives and let it shape us daily. And this call to be disciples leads us to acts of service to our king. It demands us to do something. We cannot be just stagnant. We have duty as fishers of men. 
And so a final thing to note here, it's not actually common practice for rabbis to go out and call people. Usually it was the reverse in the culture. People would be in this society as rabbis, teachers that were known and prominent, and they would be attracting people to them as students. Jesus does the complete opposite, and there's no other ancient accounts of anyone doing something like this. Jesus actually does something with significant authority in such a way that it almost calls our minds back to 1 Kings 19 to think about the prophets. And if you jot down 1 Kings 19 to check out later, in verses 20 through 21, you'll see the prophet Elijah as he is calling his predecessor Elisha. He comes to him plowing in a field and calls him out of this moment. But there is a significant difference between the two. Elisha is permitted to go back and say goodbye to his family. Yet in Mark, there's no moment of turning at all. There's a complete and immediate response. We don't know all the details of how this unfolds in the book of Mark. We don't know the conversations that happened potentially before or leading up to. What we do know is what Mark told us, and it was specifically told us in this way for us to see the message he wants us to see. Jesus has a very clear authority, a very significant power. He has called in a few words and disciples have followed him, just like prophets did, but even greater than that. This immediacy should be noted, but not too greatly because we don't know all the details, but Mark has done this intentionally for us. So Jesus' authority here is woven into this testimony of these men. Follow Christ, no questions asked, revealing that he truly is the Son of God. And so, we see that if Jesus is the Son of God, then we must rightly apply the gospel of God as fishers of men too. And so we're left wondering to think, who is this guy that has this authority that he can just get people to drop their jobs at a moment's notice? What power is there? And that leads us into our next session very easily. The third proof of Jesus' authority. The third proof of Jesus as the Son of God. And this is Jesus' power. Jesus' power proves he is the Son of God. And this will be the remainder of the chapter, verses 21 through 45. So we have seen that people are proving this. We have seen that preaching has proved this and now power, Jesus' power. 21 through 34 are going to unfold a single 24-hour period of time. A single day in Capernaum. And this is wild to think about. All of this is going to happen, every one of these events, in a 24-hour period. And what you should note here is that Jesus is the only one doing the action. There's, there's no one else accomplishing tasks here. This is Jesus on display. Jesus teaching. Jesus exercising demons. Jesus healing. Jesus preaching. Several areas of his power are going to be seen. And so I'll break that down with some subpoints for you. The first is powerful teaching. That's verses 21 through 22. We see that Jesus is teaching with power or with authority. The the same word has the same meaning there. Numerous times in the book of Mark, Jesus is described as teaching to refer to him as the one acting. There are several times that this word is used and only once is it used in in relation to someone who is not Jesus. There's a clear messianic relationship between teaching and who Jesus is. And the one time is in chapter six that is different from this is Jesus sending out his disciples to do the teaching. So the authority is clearly seen in the teaching of itself just in how the word is used in the book of Mark. But we see that the crowds actually recognize this authority. 
Man, he, he, look at this man who, who speaks as one with authority and not as the scribes. This word, like I said, it can also mean power and it's a key concept for us. It's going to show up throughout Mark as Jesus reveals all kinds of authority over demons, over nature, and over numerous things. We will see several of those even in the rest of this chapter. And it says he's teaching not as the scribes. Well, scribes were well known for their expertise. They, they were great in skill in their areas of expertise. Apart from the chief of priests, they were the only ones allowed into the Sanhedrin. They were the first seats in the synagogue that were reserved they were called upon and even honored when, when people, when they walked into a room by people. They taught the Torah and, and principles of morality in the law. And so to say that Jesus taught as one with authority above the scribes, that's not to belittle the scribes as much as it is to show the superiority of Jesus. His teaching is far beyond them. He has a unique authority, something that is different than what they have known. And yet, at the same time, the scribes are somewhat of a foil to Jesus because it, 17 out of 18 times scribes are used in the book, it's a negative, antagonistic thing to his ministry. And look at the people's response. They were amazed. Why? Because he had this authority. They were also amazed in verse 27, though, at something else. Another type of power is seen. So this is the second subpoint. He has power over an unclean spirit, verses 23 through 28. So Jesus, he enters into this synagogue in this moment as he has begun this teaching. And this synagogue is actually likely still there in Capernaum. You can go and see part of the ruins that's there. I looked at some pictures of it today. Isaac McGee was just there visiting. And it's on this north shore of Galilee. And it's, it's fascinating to keep track of what happens in the synagogue throughout the book of Mark. Here we're going to see that there is an unclean spirit, but then there will be antagonistic religious leaders in chapter 3 and 12. There will be hard hearts in chapter 6 and persecution in chapter 13. Yet on this day, an unclean spirit comes, and Mark chooses that word, I think, very intentionally. He could have used demon. He uses that in different places in the remainder of the chapter and throughout the book of Mark, but he uses unclean spirit. And it's fascinating. Look at the dialogue that exists here. In verse 24, the unclean spirit yells in this verse, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Note the identity that has just been given to us intentionally by Mark. And at the same time, the holiness of God is what's being put on display by an unclean spirit. Do you see this contrast that's being painted for us? Jesus is not unclean. He makes people clean. He purifies. He is not the one who is tainted. Jesus is in contrast to this evil spirit. And often people you would expect in the book of Mark to get things right are the ones that are actually getting things wrong. We, we see that um, those who you would not expect to get things right actually do. So the outcasts and, and demons even explaining identity, they're seeing things. And yet the crowds and the religious leaders and those who are with him, disciples even, will miss some of the key details of who Christ is. It's slowly going to be formed in their discipleship, remember? And so this exorcism is simply a few words from Jesus. This man with an unclean spirit comes and this encounter happens and he speaks to him. He rebukes him. He, he literally says to be muzzled. And then this demon convulses in this man and comes out. Our attention should not be drawn to the miracle alone. The miracle 
is not the point. The, the dialogue reveals the identity. The miracle reveals the identity of the Son of God. The, the point is the person. Miracles are not the message. Christ is. The gospel of God is repent and believe in the Holy One, not see and be amazed by the actions and works of God. We should be careful not to just point people to the good things of Christ that he offers. The gospel includes repentance and belief in the Son of God. Thirdly, we see that power is being displayed over illness. This is verses 29 through 31. So Jesus, they, Jesus and his disciples, they leave the synagogue and they go back to Simon and Andrew's house to see Simon's mother-in-law. And here they find Simon's mother-in-law sick with a fever. And Jesus simply touches her and she is healed. That's all it takes. She gets up right away and starts serving as any good host would do. And there is a bit of contrast here between this miracle and the former of the exorcism. The exorcism is public and this miracle is private. The exorcism is full of shouts and amazement by these crowds. And this is simply just a matter of fact with no dialogue after. The previous was with words and now we see it with touch. All this to say, it was not about the method. It again is about the person, the identity. Jesus really is the son of God. And he is not just about the big flashy public stuff either. He is intentional even in the smallest of moments. Verses 32 through 34 will show another display of Jesus' power, and that's power over, again, illness and demons. Verse 34a reads, And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. So in case you didn't get the picture, Jesus has extreme power. He is literally clearing out hospitals in a single day on the job. The whole healing and demon cleansing thing, it wasn't just a fluke moment. This is something that he can do regularly without any hindrance whenever he wants to. He's never seen struggling or needing help in this. He is all powerful and his power reveals that he is the son of God. Verses 35 through 39, we zoom in on a moment of prayer and preaching, another evidence of his power. And Jesus prays only three times in this whole gospel account. Here, after the feeding of the 5,000 and in the Garden of Gethsemane, all night, all of them were taken at night, all of them took place at night, and in solitary places. And for the sake of time, I, I will leave it at this. Mark wanted us to see that Jesus took the time to pray in the midst of his ministry, so much so that he wrote it down. And we, too, who have ministries as people, as disciples of the King, should be finding times to be humbly dependent upon God's grace to pray as well. We, we need to be bathing ourselves in prayer and coming to our Father, coming as sons of God to God as well. And after this prayer, we cycle back to the preaching of Christ just like we started. And now more demons are getting exercised and they're joined together. This preaching and the casting out of demons happen even including these things together. They're intertwined. And after this prayer and preaching, just like we started, um, we see that more demons getting exercised. What I want you to notice here about Jesus' ministry is that it's both inward-facing and outward-facing. It's centripetal and centrifugal. Jesus went out to people to preach outward, and Jesus attracted people to himself to heal them. People went out to John in the wilderness to hear his preaching, but Jesus goes out to people to preach to them. There's been a change that has happened. 
It has switched directions. Jesus also never went out towards people to heal them. That wasn't his primary goal. That wasn't his primary mission. He says here in these verses that his primary mission was to go and preach the gospel. And so we see the emphasis. His mission was clear. Healing happened along the way. It is certainly a part of his ministry, but it wasn't the predominant focus. And I think that's helpful for us as we rightly prioritize missions in the church. The priority of Christ and the purpose was to preach the gospel, yet also he cared for people along the way. It's not one without the other. They're done in tandem. One of these is priority, though, the gospel. And this last scene that displays Jesus' power comes in verses 40 through 45. And this power of, that proves he is the Son of God is the leper, the, this healing of this leper. And this scene with the leper initiates a series of several controversial encounters that Jesus has in his ministry that will extend all the way into chapter 3. And these acts are seen as unexpected and even scandalous at times. And so we see that there's this leprous man and and he comes and approaches Jesus on his knees and says, if you are willing, make me clean. This leper comes close, which is already taboo because of the cultural realities there, the religious realities of the Levitical code, the law that exists. He is unclean, and he is approaching someone who is not. So how is this going to play out? Well, you should have, again, in the back of your mind, there's something else unclean that happened, an unclean spirit. And now, again, we're cycling back to an unclean scenario playing out with the Holy One of God. That is the language we took from verse 23, isn't it? And Jesus moved with compassion, or in another way to say this, moved with anger. There's some discrepancy in what the meaning here is and which translation is original. In a different manuscript, there's a reading that says moved with anger, something of that kind. And the the variants um, in the Hebrew just even flare up into the nostrils is the way this is kind of portrayed. It's strong language, and I think I favor the more difficult reading. The question then is, what is he angry at? And most scholars, they're going to point to sin as the impact of the curse. Jesus is moved with anger, not at this man for being sick, but for the reality that sickness exists in the world and that he is here to help in the situation. So he's moved with anger and unto compassion. Either way gets the point across. Jesus ignores then the ritual purity law of Leviticus 13 through 14 for himself. He extends his hand and, and touches this leper. This would make him unclean. This is significant. You don't just touch a leper. One, you, you will get this disease, but two, this makes you ritually unclean as well. Yet Jesus does not become unclean. He, he makes people clean. Jesus is purity. He is holy. He is the holy one. He washes him clean. And I think the picture here is of the gospel. It's hidden in the background. And, and notice in, in verse 45 that Jesus could no longer enter into the city but he had to move out into the unpopulated areas. So that's how the Levitical code worked, right? If you were a leper, you had to have a camp outside of the city and not be with the people. And what has happened now is Jesus has cleansed this man so that he can rejoin the city, and he is now moved outside the city because of the crowds that are coming after him. At the very least, I think there's an illustration here of the gospel. Christ is, in a sense, taking on the curse on behalf of others that they would be cleansed. The same is true of the demon-possessed man. He was filled with an unclean spirit, but the Holy One purifies him. So to put this all together, 
I have to address the elephant in the room that's in this passage. What's up with Jesus telling all these people to be quiet? I mean, really, what is happening here? He tells the demon after he says, hey, you're the holy one of Israel. He says, hey, be quiet. Don't tell people who I am. And then to this leper, he says, don't tell people what has happened here. Don't go proclaiming that. Don't go preaching that. There's that word that comes back. This reality of the messianic secret, as it's called by scholars, shows up throughout the whole book of Mark, and it is quite prominent. And while I believe there's several factors, I think the main reason here is Jesus is guarding against a premature and false understanding of the real gospel, of who he is, and therefore what the gospel message is. The deal is these people are only seeing the good stuff. They don't know who Christ is for his suffering, for his death, the one who would die, the one who would rise again. And this will be confirmed in chapter 9 of Mark when he tells his disciples to not tell who he is after they see him in the transfiguration. And he says, don't tell them it until I have risen from the dead. And so if they go tell now, it's just a health and wealth gospel. Guys, you'll never believe it. Guess what Jesus does? He heals people. It's just good stuff. He casts out demons. I want to follow him because he gives me good stuff. I want the stuff. I don't want the person. And this is a message lacking repentance, lacking the preaching that Jesus started the chapter with. So Jesus sternly warns the leper to not tell. So we too must make sure that we have the correct gospel. We cannot miss it like so many will in this account of Mark. We cannot be the crowd that just gathers for the miracles. We need to come to the person of Christ. This is true in all areas of our ministry, not just in our salvation. Missions without the gospel is just humanitarian work. Discipleship without the gospel is just a coffee date. Counseling spiritual issues without the gospel is just a band-aid on a gaping spiritual wound. The church without the gospel is a social club. Church planting without the gospel is just moving. Preaching and evangelism without the gospel is ultimately damning. And Jesus says that we too are to be fishers of men, so we need to make sure we have the message correct. Jesus' priority in his ministry was the proclamation of the gospel, and we need to know that that is true for us as well. We must keep the main thing the main thing. Helping others is good, and we should. And Jesus does this along the way. He still had compassion because of the curse in the world. But preaching the gospel was primary. The preaching of the gospel offers eternal hope where physical fixing of healing is is only temporary. We cannot neglect this mission. We cannot be passive disciples who are not fishing for men. We need to see our Jesus as the Son of God, as proven by prophets, as proven by God, as proven by preaching people and Jesus' power. And with this correct view of Jesus, let's respond rightly by taking that message as fishers of men to the world. If Jesus is the Son of God, then we must rightly apply the gospel of God as fishers of men. Let's pray. Lord, your word is powerful and it speaks clearly through this account of Mark to your identity as the Son of God. And the reality of this identity demands a response. It demands that we do something. And I pray if there are people in this room that do not know you, that repentance and belief would be their action and their pursuit this day. And for those of us that do, I pray that that message would be clearly spoken on our lips wherever we go as we take it to be fishers of men, seeing that more disciples would come to know you. Lord, you have power. You have authority over so many things, over all things, all powerful. 
May we not forget this and may we see you as powerful even in our own lives as we submit to you and the calling you have for us as your disciples. Lord, we are grateful for who you are. We love you and we pray these things in your precious son's name. Amen.